Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome to Chatting with Adults, the program where we get insights and advice from actual adults. Today, I'm honored to present my mother, Natalie Bureau, and she will be sharing her wisdom with us. Welcome to episode one of Chatting with Adults. Wow. I feel honored to be number one on your podcast. Yeah, I've got my mom in the studio here. I figured uh, best place to start with talking with adults is talking with the first adult in my life. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I was Thank uh, you. I was a handful to raise. And so can you take me through the phases you went through? Well, firstly, I was really angry <laughs> <laughs> that I was pregnant because I was so young um, yeah, and of course none of that has anything to do with you as a person. It has everything to do with me and where my brain was, and I'm not really sure anyone at the age of 20 is ready to cook a baby in their belly. Um, yeah, and I didn't love being pregnant. <laughs> I kept hearing everyone say, oh, I love being pregnant, you're going to love it, and I kept waiting, waiting to love it. And it just kept getting worse. The best part about it was feeling you move in my belly. Because that's like uh, when it gets real. And you think, whoa, that's a real thing. Um, And so that's, if I had to pick one thing that I actually did like, it was when, as a mother, I could feel a baby moving in my stomach. Of course, I hadn't met you yet, so, you know, I didn't know who you were. You're pretty cool. Um, yeah, you, you, you shaped me. You were born, born to me at a time when I was trying to figure out who I was, and, of course, that didn't even happen until decades later. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in university, and I think, although I was not a great mother, right off the bat when you were born, because who really is? Um, you got a lot of parts of me that were more fun and whimsical than your brothers did, because I still carried with me a lot of, um, well, I guess immaturity, but in a good way, naivety and sp- spice, life, zest, energy. You had the most energetic mother. I'm also the most ignorant, <laughs> the most <laughs> ignorant mother. You know, uh, but I took you to university told you all the stories about when I banged your head on everything imaginable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm amazed you're not brain damaged. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's a debate about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's the whole, I don't know, that's that's the um, emotional experience of it. And I think as a mother, a new mother, um, I was, once you were born, I was so happy that you were healthy and strong and you would grow and you'd you had so much energy and personality you would never sleep you would not go to sleep i still don't like going to sleep oh my gosh you were exhausting you were exhausting because you're a responder to your environment at every angle in every situation as an infant you responded and you responded to my tension and my emotional strife as well and Neither That was neither of our faults, but it took a toll on the both of us. My tensions took a toll on you, and your demands took a toll on me. So it's kind of this equally taxing yet equally symbiotic 
beneficial relationship. It's, it's really an interesting dynamic um, with you that your brothers don't have the same. So although I would, I've always said to you I was a terrible mother as far as not knowing what I'm doing when you were born, but you really got a lot of the best parts of me as well as the worst parts. You got kind of the, the extreme spectrum of, of me. And by the time the other ones came along, I'd come more to a center point of mothering, which was more consistent, but perhaps a little less spunky. Well, I found, I always feel like as the oldest, I have to go, I have to fight all my own battles and I've got to, I've got to break you guys in as parents the same way you're breaking me in as a child. And I feel like as you had more kids, my two brothers, you're more lenient with them or you didn't have to fight with them about the same things because either they learned from me or you were able to figure out what battles are worth fighting. And how do you change your parenting style for different kids? Well, and that's, that's an interesting dynamic because every kid needs different things. And in the education system currently we realize or one of the models they say is what is fair isn't necessarily equal for every child right what is fair is different based on each kid's needs and so that kind of carries through into parenting um your third the third boy jordan obviously your second brother he is i mean and we would all say he's the most mature responsible probably out of the five of us He's like, I don't know where he came from. <laughs> I know he came out of my body, but um, so he didn't need the same restraints and rules and monitoring that you needed. You, because you respond to your environment, because of who you are, because you like to touch hot stoves and because you like to stick your fingers in light sockets, um, you carry that into a teenager. And uh, it's quite scary what you could get into compared to a child who doesn't have the curiosity to stick their finger in a light socket or touch a hot stove. So as you were into teen years, the stressors with keeping you from touching the equivalent of a hot stove as a teenager, which carries with it far more grave um, long-term effects of mistakes that you could be making as a teen, simply didn't come through in your brother's to the same degree. So I was a different parent, largely because they were different children. But also, as you say, also because the learning curve gets easier with more kids. And of course, those kids are watching their big brother get in trouble and thinking, okay, I think I'll not do that because mom will do this. So it's a mixture of both, for sure. Me learning to be a mother and the different personality needs of each child demands different things out of a parent. If you were to go back to 20-year-old you and give yourself information about raising the three of us, what would you tell yourself? I would have to agree with what older people told me when I was 20, which was basically chill out <laughs> and don't respond so dramatically to everything. Everything doesn't matter as much as you think it does. But when you have your first kid, you're determined... They're going to be the perfect child. You're going to raise them. You're going to be the perfect parent. As time goes on, you, you can only fail with that kind of expectation. Your kid's going to fail, and you're going to fail. And as you have more kids, if you have more kids, you realize, um, okay, I'm going to turn a blind eye to this or that because it just doesn't matter. And I reacted to every little thing with the first one, and it was a waste of energy. 
and more stress on the child and on me. And um, so, yeah. It's interesting that you say things don't matter as much as you think they do. That's kind of a general life lesson. Oh, my gosh. I think the my new M.O. is to stop thinking everything is going to bring the house down, so to speak. And it's funny, you hear things in your 20s, and you hear older, wiser people tell you, and you... As I'm hearing older, wiser people tell me in my 20s these things that I'm touching on telling you, I remember thinking dismissively about the advice, assuming they knew not what they were speaking of. They couldn't possibly understand what I mean, <laughs> which is really just a, an ignorant way to... But, I mean, that's youth. You, you really can't avoid a lot of that thinking in your 20s. I can sit here and tell you tell you things, and you might think, okay, well, that may be fine for her, but I really this really matters to me. And then you give yourself 15 years, and you might circle back and go, yeah, she was right. But part of that, as you had said once to me before, is just learning, and you can't rob the learning curve by taking every piece of advice from every old person they ever gave you. Some of it, sometimes you have to touch a hot stove and realize, that hurts, it's hot, I'm not going to do that. I think in general, that's true for everybody. I mean, we can do our best to learn from the mistakes of other people, but it doesn't mean as much to you. You can't attach emotionally with heeding somebody else's warning. It's true, and I think you, there's a balance. That's the other thing, which you have old people tell you. <laughs> Life is all about balance. You hear it ad nauseum. You ignore it most of the time because you keep hearing it, and you don't fully know what it means. Logically, we know what balance means in your 20s, but you don't have enough data to collect, to put into the balancing scale, to really understand what it means to keep balance. You just haven't lived enough. So when people would say to me, oh, it's, you know, it's all about balance, you take it in and go, well, duh, yeah, it's all about balance. I could have told you that one, but you don't have the practical experience or the data collection to really apply the concept of balance until... You've lived some hard things, some good things, and then you realize, okay, keeping a balanced life makes more sense. So I think data collection is a big thing in life. I think the real problem is when people don't learn. And I know I've always told you mistakes are fine. They're just a waste if you don't learn. And uh, I think that, and, you know, we don't want to make mistakes that are, like, going to decapitate us, either literally or figuratively, because you can't learn if you have been decapitated. It's kind of over at that point, mm -hmm. even if, in a, if it's in a figurative sense. If you've just made such a huge mistake that you, you can't even come back from it, then sadly, that's what we want to avoid. So that's the kind of mistake you can learn from other people. Things like, if you steal a car, you're probably going to end up in jail at some point. I don't need to steal a car to know that I'm not going to do that. But the smaller mistakes, you know, don't date that girl. My mom doesn't like her. Well, mom, what does my mom know? Mm. Unfortunately, your mom knows a lot that you don't know when you're a teenager, but not everything, but still the, you can look back and say, well, yeah, that probably wasn't the best, best idea, but it didn't decapitate me so I can learn from it. So, you, you know, any mistake you can make that's small enough that you can learn from, doesn't damage your future. Those are the smart mistakes 
Those are the little ones. The big ones I really feel we can learn from others. And that, of course, just comes from observation and kind of a self-preservation thing. Do I want to be a criminal? No. You know, do I want to be a drug addict? I don't think so. Do I want to be an addict of any kind? Probably not. So these types of things, you don't have to delve into those mistakes really to understand the gravity of avoiding them. Well, and that takes a lot of self-awareness as well. You've always spoken about the importance of maintaining self-awareness. Like you're always asking me, why are you doing that? Or think about what you're doing, make good decisions. Um, and so I feel like I've benefited over everybody else, all my other friends, because I've always had a self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Because decisions we make throughout life are going to have risks associated with them. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Risk and reward. Yeah, I think and I was speaking to a friend of mine recently and hitting on that subject, which really is about, like, our society in general, we seem motivated to avoid pain, to avoid negative emotions, to avoid... We have... But if we live our lives trying to avoid all emotional pain, for example, so my, say my... My goal, and when I leave the studio, is from now on, I don't want to feel any emotional pain. I don't want to have heartbreak. I don't want to feel hurt. So then if you run yourself through a mental simulation, you realize, okay, well, what do I have to do to avoid emotional pain? Okay, well, I definitely can't date anybody because inevitably, even if you don't break up with someone, in the course of a relationship, you will have emotional pain involved in loving that person, you know, love and pain are are holding hands all the time. They never separate. So you cannot have love without pain. So if I want to avoid pain, that means I'm avoiding love. And that you can extrapolate to, let's take it to the body, to physical. Oh, I have a headache. I don't want to have a headache. I'm going to take a pill to mask the pain that I'm feeling. The downside to that is, Masking pain puts a Band-Aid on a bigger issue, potentially, and if we get used to that habit of, of living, um, we can end up with bigger problems. That's not to say that pain relief is, there's not a place for pain relief, but I think especially now, and pot is probably a good example, but also people addicted to, say, Percocet, Oxycontin, Oxycontin, anything else, even just popping Tylenols and Ibuprofens at the slightest Ache, you know, we're not really meant as humans to be painless. That's not that's not how we're built. We have pain receptors for a reason. We can perceive pain because it's important to feel it and it's part of living. So we can extend that to physical, emotional, you know, throw spiritual in there, whatever. Any any venue we can live on has to have pain in it. Let's touch on that, because right now society is circling around anxiety and depression as being, would you say, more significant than it is? Yes, I feel, and I'm obviously no uh, psychology professional, but in the theme of avoiding pain, then we have things like anxiety and depression, although those are natural. I mean, part of being a human is to feel anxious, to feel depressed at some point. Sure, there is severe depression that may lead someone to kill themselves and that's very severe you've got to be pretty severely anxious or depressed to to follow through with a plan of suicide type thing 
but we're we're talking more in general terms and not about extremes. The general population is not suicidal, but there's a uh, seemingly imbalanced number of people who rely on antidepressants. Perhaps it's overdiagnosed, and again, I'm not in the field in a professional capacity, so this is strictly my own opinion. But if it's if we're trying to escape depression and anxiety, I'm not convinced that that's always healthy. If I have a an exam to write and I'm in university and I feel anxious or depressed about it, the motivating factor from the resulting factor from that is that I'm going to go study instead of going out to the bar because studying is going to relieve some anxiety and it's going to make me perform. Um, that's a simplistic view, and of course, anything I'm saying is in a general way, but I do feel in our goal to feel blissfully happy all the time and to feel no pain and only feel love, we're cheating ourselves from learning and th- the other side of the coin, which is pain and, you know, you can't have, as you once told me, you can't have something without giving something up for it. That's part of balance, so you you can't have all this bliss without giving up something, which is the pain part of it. The other side of the coin is there's going to be pain. You're newly married, comes with a lot of love and joy, but it also comes with a lot of growing pains and aches and anxieties and just a lot of growing pains involved. So if you have a kid that's growing from baby and upward, they fall down and they hurt themselves. Should we medicate them and give them a Tylenol because they fell down and bruised their knee? No, of course we don't do that. But why do adults do it? Toddlers don't. Toddlers fall down, they get up off the floor, and they keep going. But adults, somewhere along the line, we become adults, and we stop falling down and just getting up and keep going. We just fall down and go, oh, my goodness, I feel pain and anxiety. I need some pills. I need a, I need a diagnosis. I need... It doesn't make any sense. Why don't we carry the simplicity of child-rearing, good child-rearing, not terrible child-rearing? Um, and I have three wonderful sons, so I'm going to pat myself on the back and say I did a decent job. Why don't we extrapolate that into adulthood and say, well, I dated this guy. I'm, you know, 48 and single. I could date a man. He could hurt hurt my heart. And I might decide I'm never dating again. But that's not falling down and getting up and keeping going. That's falling down and staying down. So why would I do that? Like, Well, that kind of ties into the self-awareness thing. We have mm. this pain and we're inclined to treat it. I mean, the pharma- pharmaceutical company has been pushing that notion for a while because that's how they make money. So when you have a headache, mm. take a Tylenol mm. and emotional pain, you're ang- anxious and depressed, take this SSRI to like make you feel better. So tell me if you agree with this. I think that we are distracting ourselves or we're being deliberately distracted by, say, these big corporations so that we continue taking these pills and we don't question, say, emotional pain. Why am I feeling emotional pain Mm -hmm. right now? What am I not dealing with? That people don't want to answer why. They don't want to ask themselves why because they don't want to know, they don't want to know the answer. And and I'm not saying that I'm always doing it right because for sure um, I'm, I'm certainly not perfect. But I have this almost an obsession with understanding my own motivations. And if I am off on some tangent and way out in left field unreasonably, I want to know because I want to be more centered 
and more logical. But I see people avoiding the question of why. And um, I think if we avoid the question of why, we risk continuing painful things, hurting others even. You can have spouses that don't want to answer the question, why don't I want to be with my wife anymore? Why don't I want to sit on the couch with her? Why don't I... Why don't I enjoy my husband's company? And the question is either... Or the answer is either... Basically, you're sick of your spouse and you don't love them anymore, which is a, a painful realization to come to for, per, for both the person who realizes it and the person who's on the receiving end or the not receiving end of love. Um... It's, it's not easy to answer the why question. And I think in, to avoid, in order to avoid emotional pain, people just don't answer it. They don't ask it, they don't answer. But I think we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice. We're doing our loved ones a disservice. How can, you, how can you grow? How can you really connect with someone if you won't ask yourself what's going on in your own mind and heart and stuff? So that's a good, that's a good um, question. <laughs> I, I'm curious what you think about what's going on in the world right now in terms of influence. I've noticed a trend, like a hypersexuality developing in our society. Looking at, uh, say, Riverdale, a TV show that's on now, it's got these, starring these teenagers, allegedly, and they're all super sexual. They're making out neat scenes. Shirts are coming off. They're showing abs. They just, the recent episode I just watched, they um, had a car wash and they were objectifying, you know, the male body. And... Ariana Grande had a song recently that said, break up with your girlfriend because I'm bored. Mm. What do you think is behind this influence? Who, who stands to gain from... Or introducing in, sexuality. Down, yeah, breaking so down the, the notion of a relationship and introducing hypersexuality. That's a good question. Um, access is unlimited. When you were a baby... It was not like this. And when you were a child, it was not like this. There was no internet until well after you were born. And even when there was internet, you were not on it. So, you know, computers in our family were just making a, making a presence when you were around the age of five or six and you were playing Stanley on a CD disc. Reader Rabbit. Reader Rabbit. These innocent child games, which were lovely, um, and I think, I don't know that there's anyone that stands to gain. It is the, or it appears to be simply a byproduct of a really fast technological age where access is instant and unlimited. Nobody wants any barriers. We want everything now. We want it all yesterday. We want it fast. If I touch my screen and click on a web page and it doesn't pop up in one second, I'm irritated. And um, there's a lot of benefits to technology. I love technology. Um, but it's come at a really high cost. And I'm not sure that there's someone who stands to gain or a big, a big entity that stands to gain as much as there is. And, of course, there's money everywhere. Like, there's money to be made all over the place, um, TV shows make money. Porn makes money. Although porn makes less money than it used to. I saw in a documentary. Oh, yeah. Because it's so 
easy to get. No one has to pay for it. When porn first came out, people had to buy the VHS and watch the tape. Porn was in magazines. You had to go buy the physical magazine, you know, the nudie magazines that were... Porn has become, and I watched, I can't remember the documentary, it was on either Netflix or Crave. And it was talking about how some of them are just having a hard time making money, uh, which is probably kind of a neat concept when you think about how much money was to be made and that there's less money to be made. Like, I don't know how they're making more. I think they have to just keep upping the ante in order to make the money because the commonplace garden variety porn is so vast, easy to make, and, you know, it's it's like a drug kind of. You have to keep upping, upping the the triggers in order to gain the same high. It's the same for drugs. It's the same for porn. It's the same for technology. So technology is like the devil, really, except it's got this kind of angel's wings on it. You don't know, is it, is it the devil? Is it an angel? I can't classify it because I love it, but all this negativity. Well, commenting on that, because um, we grew up in a Christian household, we're seeing now Elon Musk's company and Facebook and this other company called Kernel, they're developing brain interfaces for the compu- for interacting with your technology. Mm-hmm. And in Sweden, we've seen that um, RFID chips have been put in the hand mm-hmm. so that you can integrate with technology with your hand. So that sounds like the mark of the beast to me, you know, having something in your head, having something mm-hmm. in your hand. Do you think that the current technological trend is directly correlated with the mark of the beast? Yeah, as a technological advancement, that's where it's, it makes logical sense that that's the pathway it's taking. Um, and the, the religious aspect, I think it's interesting that this old book, the Bible, made this kind of prediction. And, of course, it was very puzzling when the first scribe people went, what, what does that mean, the mark of the beast, you know, is it? And that day and age, the mark of the beast back in sandal time, maybe that was uh, some kind of ink tattoo or, you know, I think that the, the religious definition of the mark of the beast has changed over centuries as each Christian population in that time saw progression and realized our dependency on this progression. And then there's postulation about, well, what is the mark of the beast? So a hundred years ago, the mark of the beast at that time might have looked different. Mm -hmm. In our age, religion would classify the mark of the beast as these sort of RDFI chips on the hand and in the forehead type thing. So I think that the definition of it and the significance of it changes as technology changes. But it's, uh, it's, at some point, something is going to level out or cap out because there, there will be, you already kind of see a plateau of technology advancements. There's only, I mean, light can only go so fast. The speed of light tops out at what the speed of light is and it can't go any faster. I sort of see technology in a similar way. It's gone from the industrial age of, you know, being very, very tangible to, to this age now where, where um, progression is all technological. Everything gets smaller, faster, or bigger, you know, depending on what it is. 
And um, our dependency is the scary factor, whether you're religious or you're not religious. I find dependency a disturbing thing, which is why, as you know, I don't drink coffee daily. I don't like the feeling of my body requiring a substance of any kind of function on any level. This goes with technology now. Can I go without my phone? Sure. I might make less money because it's part of my business. My phone is my office, but in a broader sense, if we are inseparable from our technology, I find that disturbing. And so mm -hmm. implanting these things, it's probably not something I'm going to be keen to do because then it's solidifying a dependency I cannot easily remove. Right now I can turn my phone off. I can go to the mountains and just disconnect. And it brings me back to a grassroots that I think is important to be able to do to stay grounded. Would you agree that people aren't thinking anymore? Yes, and that begs the question, and I agree with that, and it begs the question, what happens to a large mass of people who are not thinking? And I can only conclude that masses of people that are not thinking are more easily led. So if people are in the habit of not thinking analytically about what's going on around them, then it makes, it creates a gap for someone to step in and start being or, excuse me, predicting or dictating. Um, I mean, if we have to go back to Hitler as a really rudimentary example, what kind of mass of people thinks it's at all logical to kill anyone without blue eyes because somehow blue eyes are more superior. We could do that, we could extrapolate that to skin color and say, why on earth did anyone ever feel that darker skin color was inferior to lighter skin color? But when you think logically and you apply logic to that, you see how utterly ridiculous it is. But the bigger question is, what are we doing now that is utterly ridiculous that in... 50 years, we're going to look back and say, well, that was utterly ridiculous. And it could be these people never sat in silence and let their brains just be quiet. What happens when your mind is quiet? When you sit in a, if you try it, I challenge anyone to try it, sit in your house with, with nothing on that makes noise, no visual stimuli significant, like no digital, no... You know, you're just sitting in your living room, staring at the walls, basically. At that point, you are left with your thoughts, which relates back to the whole concept of people not wanting to ask themselves why, because they don't want to know the answer. If you're left with your thoughts, you are in a position to now assess, how was my day? Did I like what happened? What about last week? I had a fight with so-and-so. Was that really okay? Was I wrong? Were they wrong? Am I being unreasonable? All these questions, if, you're, if you have time to sit and think about your day, your week, your month, your year, then you have time to see your own flaws. You have time to see other people's. You have time to see, I need to forgive this person. I need to go say sorry to that person. People who are never silent cannot have these epiphanies because there's no space for thought. So when we always have earbuds in, we're driving the car, the radio is always on, there's no time to think. And yeah, I think that's disturbing.
I think if we, if we're constantly bombarding ourselves, it's kind of like sugar. If you keep eating sugar, you just want more sugar. You have no, no taste buds for salad because it's boring relative to sugar. It doesn't give you the same fun taste. You know, we all love, hey, I love sugar. Um, but I've been off it for a while out of necessity, and I find I, I like salad more. Um, it, and I had a donut the other day, and it made me feel disgusting. If I bring that parallel into sitting quietly and being with our thoughts versus noise pollution, I would equate noise pollution with sugar. TV looks, the, the stimuli feels great all the time. Though that looks, that picture on the TV looks good, this show is great, this song is great. But it doesn't really compare to silence as far as it feeding a deeper need. Honesty and real, which is vastly escaping a lot of us, I think. I want to get back to the first question that I asked you. What would you tell yourself 20 years ago? When you are 60, 70, what do you think that you would hope that you would learn at this point? If I was looking back on myself from my 60s from to now, 60s to now, I think it would be more important to value people. And I would say to myself, gee, I wish I'd spend more time with that person. I wish I had listened more to that person. I wish I had made time for joy in whatever form that was. And I'm not talking about selfish joy. I'm just talking about just making time for things that are joyful and not in a, gee, I want to get high kind of joy. A true organic joyfulness, um, the kind of thing that comes with sitting here talking to you is joyful because you're my son and you're, it's taking the time with each, you, you privilege me by asking me here and that's joyful. So it's sometimes the simplest thing, sitting out on a swing, walking in the park and hearing the trees blow. These simplistic things are escaping society. There are some people that really make a point of valuing these things. But I think that most of us get caught up in the whirlwind that is modern living. And when I'm 60 talking to myself now, I think I'm saying to myself, take time for people, for nature, because that's that's the organic source of joy. It isn't technology, although I like my big, bigger TV. Balance. Do you think that's what, say, the religious texts are talking about when they say, you're not bringing anything with you when you die? It totally is, and I have to say that that, you can't take it with you when you die, has hit home this year for me with the whole cancer thing. Um, it's sort of brought more balance. Cancer's actually done me a favor, and I can say that because I'm on a good prognosis road. You know, so far, things are looking go good. I suppose if I had something more horrible, I may not be able to say the same thing, but I think it's made me a better person, and it's changed my value structure, my, my priorities if I go into a store, I find myself looking at things, and actually I don't even go to stores very often, and thinking, why would I even buy that? 
Where am I going to put it? Who cares? Like, it's, I, it just doesn't matter. Now, I do like my house, and I like my sofa, and so I'm not saying these things are terrible. But I, as you say, I would much prefer to be with people, and I would much prefer to be alone sometimes, too, than to seek out tangible pleasure, like tangible purchases or, you know, these tangible things that seem less meaningful than the intangible things. So sometimes being by myself is an intangible pleasure. I have time to sit down and think. Um, it's quiet. I appreciate peace and quiet. I don't know if that's a function of my age. I didn't like being alone when I was younger. I was petrified of being left alone, petrified of divorce because I'd be alone. Who would look after me when I'm sick? You know, all these things were my fears when I got divorced, but I have learned to value silence, and that's a healthy thing, and it's too bad I didn't value that when I was also married. It probably would have leveled me out a bit more as well and made me calmer. Mm -hmm. Do you think that some would benefit from an experience such as yours? Like any way to get this perspective? Mm -hmm. I've always said, and you'll, you'll know, I've always said that the mind, I'm impressed with how powerful the mind is, and there's a plethora of studies out there that, that um, confirm the power of thinking. And through my cancer experience, I have realized um, tangibly how that is true, and I believe it more than I ever used to. And I think there's a lot of power in running a mental simulation, Kind of like Star Trek and going into mm -hmm. the, the holodeck. holodeck. And you can do that in your mind because the mind can do that. It's, if you focus enough, and I guess you could call it meditating. or. But I think if, if I wanted to have you have this enlightenment that I've experienced having to face my own mortality more abruptly this year, then it never occurred to me to take myself through a simulation. No one ever mentioned to me, which is why when I think of things, I always tell them to you because, I don't know, I'm always trying to tell you stuff to give you stuff to chew on and think on. But it never occurred to me to run through a simulation. Um, oh, I'm going to die in two months, six months, a year. Those are all separate simulations. How do I feel? What do I want? What matters to me? So I think you don't have to have cancer or some brush with death or some scare. You can run a mental simulation quite convincingly because the brain is that powerful. Perhaps a drug can do the same thing, but I'm not convinced that's the only way. Um, if you were to ask yourself, okay, my doctor just told me I'm going to be dead in six months dead. How does that change my behavior now and my value system, my priorities? We're not talking like, I'm going to quit my job and travel the world. I'm not talking, if your life is relatively lived day to day similarly, let's take that simulation to a mental thing rather than a practical, I'm going to go travel the world. That's a tangible way that if I was dying in six months, I, I literally would go travel more and I'd be with my kids more. 
but the intangible concept behind running the simulation is about saying what matters more, what do I value more, who, who and what people and what things matter more. And when you walk into a department store or a mall running this simulation, nothing in the mall is relevant under this simulation. Actually, I don't even know the last time I was in the mall. Frankly, I'm kind of stunned that I have no idea when I was last in a mall. But because we're in London, Ontario, and malls are what we do. (laughs) Mm. Um, So I would challenge anyone to make that simulation. You've been given a death sentence of six months. You're not going to travel the world right now because obviously that's a given or whatever, you know, tangible. But take it to the intangible, to a deeper level and say, what matters to me? Who matters to me? How do I, and what I've been wrestling with as I started thinking maybe I've got breast cancer, maybe I have lung cancer, like what's going on? I think, well, what do I, what am I leaving people? People being most significantly my children. And not what am I leaving them tangibly, but what a, well, a little bit. I'm making you all a blanket so that one day when I am dead, you have a tangible item to wrap yourself in and say, my mother made this with her hands, therefore she's hugging me with this. It's kind of a, Mm -hmm. it makes me feel good to know that one day when I'm dead, you guys will have these blankets that might get all tattered, but they're going to matter and they're going to be, it's a way to connect to me when I'm not here. And it makes, it makes me feel at peace with my own mortality, knowing that when I'm gone, you can still connect to me, to something, to, as a signifying of my love for you and your brothers. And that's a recent simulation I've run. What does it look like when I'm dead and I've lost my mother, so I know the pain of that. And, of course, everyone's going to lose their mother, assuming you die before, or I die before you do. Assuming we all die in the right order, mm. everyone's going to lose their, like, I'm going to be dead before you. That's just the way it is. That's the way it should be. and um, But sometimes people lose their kids, which is, we're not talking about that. But it's made me think, how do I want, I know how I feel losing my mother, so I know how you're going to feel when you lose your mother. What can I do to help you? And how can I create some kind of way for you to connect with me when you need to? These blankets are a tangible way. The intangible thing would be anything I learn, I want to tell you and your brothers because I want you to have as much as possible because ultimately when we lose our parents, we think, my mother used to say this, my mother used to say this, my mother told me this because that's what I do with my own mother and it brings a sense of peace. So I think this communication is important. And that's the simulation I run is when I'm dead, what are you guys doing? And you're sad, but not sad forever. You have sadness and then you let it go. I, I don't want anyone swallowed by sadness. No one does. My mother didn't want that for me either. She didn't tell me that, but I know her well enough. But I do tell you that that because I'm running a simulation much much sooner than my mother did. And that's what I've learned from her is it's important to... It's important to think of these things. It's not about morbidity. It's about reality. 
It's about pragmatic, factual logistics of living. So, yeah, back to your question. We can run these simulations, have these enlightenments, drug or no drug. I'm not sure that's necessary, but a drug can do that. But we can benefit from enlightenment just by pretending, which is what kids do. Again, we go back to, like, children. Why do we stop? Why do we stop with the good aspects of child learning? You know, we seem to, we, we fall down and it hurts and we just stay down. No, get up, keep going. So you got a bruise. Who cares? You know, um, it's the same, same type of thing. Um, ch- kids pretend. Why don't adults pretend? Simulating is pretending. It's just a more fancy word. You don't, kids don't say, Mom, I'm going to go to my bedroom and simulate. <laughs> <laughs> but adults will say, we'll run a mental simulation. It's the same. It's per- so pretend you're going to die. See what matters. And I think you're going to feel enlightened. Close your eyes and really feel your own mortality and see what matters to you. What do you think of kids these days? I, as a teacher... And not a very good one, I always say, as a joke. <laughs> Although, a total tangent on the side, I went into school the other week. I saw a student that I've had a few times. He said, Miss Bureau, he exclaimed in the hallway, he said, you're my favorite teacher. I'm never going to forget you. And of wow. course I said, you're my favorite student. I'll never forget <laughs> you either. I high-fived him and said, how are grandma's sandwiches? Because this particular student's grandmother makes his delicious sandwiches that make my mouth water. So that was very encouraging, total tangent. But I feel, and I have asked kids in, in, in classes, high school, grade 12, grade 11, you know, the higher, higher level, sometimes grade nines, I guess. I ask them about the challenges because we do have the kids these days. Oh, kids are just so ridiculous. You know, you have the kids these days statement that every generation says about the next generation. Mm-hmm. But I look at kids these days and I see... They are bombarded with the idea that they should never feel stress, pain, anxiety, depression. If they feel any of these things, they need to go to the doctor immediately, get a diagnosis, and take a pill. Um, And I think that is only true for a very small ratio, proportion, sorry, of people. Instead, I feel bad for kids because parents these days are escaping pain they're passing that on to their children. Of course, I didn't do that with you. Mm. <laughs> I'm not a pain escaper. I'm not a pill popper. Not to, to brag. It's just how I raised you guys. So I feel kids have a lot to manage. Um, millennials. for the kids? I feel empathy. Sympathy has no purpose. Empathy has purpose. Empathy is like I'm putting myself in your shoes and I can feel what's going on. Sympathy is just, I feel sorry for you, and you keep on walking. That's how I define the two in my own mind. Mm. So, and pity. Pity and sympathy, I think, are similar. But empathy is putting yourself in that person's shoes. If I was, I mean, if I had the access to the internet and the distraction and the, you know, binge watching was not a thing when I was little. Internet was not a thing. We had VHS machines that were new and you press eject, and the thing raised up out of the top of the machine. So you couldn't put anything on top of it because it, it actually brought up the cassette. So barbaric to even contemplate yeah. this sort of thing. <laughs> cassette players that had two cassette players side by side so you could record, that was just the hugest thing. 
But now there's so much digital information. It's overwhelming. Kids have to act at a very young age. They have to start to learn at the age of 12 how to not be addicted to a phone. So addictions are hitting, addictive behavior is hitting children at a very young age. Three-year-olds are playing with iPads, and they're sitting on iPads for hours. So toddlers are addicted to technology. Toddlers. Toddlers have no higher level thinking. As a matter of fact, and I've always told you guys, you kids, your brain isn't done cooking till at least 25. So imagine the amount of addictive stimuli in a child's life now between the age of 2 and 25. Like, no wonder kids are addicted to pot, alcohol, their phones, pornography, sugar, you name it. We're addicted to it. because And this, this up-and-coming generation is having to not only learn their ABCs, their reading, writing, arithmetic... They're having to navigate addictions, and they don't even know what it means. By the time they're addicted to technology, they don't even know what addiction means as a word. So I, I feel like, as a parent, we can't just throw our hands up and go, well, it's, it's a tornado, and I can't help it, and this is just the way it is. No, I'm sorry. We need to look at the surroundings of our children and teach them how to cope with that, that environment. So with you guys, I remember sitting you down and each of your brothers with a book called Neuroplasticity or The Plasticity of the Brain, turned to the page about pornography and the addictive qualities of pornography and making you sit and read it. Now, you may or may not have actually read it. Um, I think you did. Yeah. But to me, that was saying, okay, I have to look around at my environment for my teenage sons and realize porn is there. Internet is here. The best I can do is arm you with information. And at some point, your higher level thinking will kick in. And you're going to remember what you read. Remember what your mom told you. As opposed to throwing up my hands and going, well, it's there. I mean, I can't help it. That's, that's lazy parenting. Can't do that. And each new parent generation is going to have to look at their environment that their kids are in. You know, with you... You kids, and you particular, I wouldn't let you watch any violence on TV. I wouldn't let you watch Arthur because he was disrespectful to his mother and is mean to his sister. You look at Arthur now, and it's like, goodness, that's the most purest thing you could possibly watch on television. Mm-hmm. But in the time, at that time in your life, Arthur was a bit edgy because of the dialogue. And uh, I wasn't fully comfortable with some of the sarcasm and the disrespect in the, you know. But if I compare it to now, you might look back and go, well, you should have let me watch Arthur. That was nothing. But that's, it's contextual. So kids these days need tools these days. So I, I feel not sorry for kids. I feel annoyed with lazy parenting. And that's not a judgment. It's an observation. And if other parents are <laughs> end up listening and thinking I'm full of myself, well, I've made lots of mistakes, and I'm not above admitting my own mistakes. But I was very active in controlling your environment as well as discussing with you 
how to behave and as you say asking the whys and as your needs you needed to understand why at a very young age once I realized you were a why guy I started giving you why I'd say you can't do this because here's what's going to happen if you do so you can do it but this is what's going to happen whether it was a consequence for behavior a punishment type thing or X, Y, this hot stove is going to burn you. Look, here's a picture of a burn blister. This does not feel good. Still, you would have touched the stove, I'm sure, but... Um, so kids these days have a lot to juggle. Parents these days, en masse, I don't believe are doing their job giving their kids tools to manage addiction. Addiction is the biggest problem. And there's so many things to be addicted to. And I've been a big addiction preacher to you, to you guys, my sons, because addiction is in our family, but it's also in the planet. It's just in society. The best I can do for you guys is educate you. And I can't ignore my duties there, even as your adults, <laughs> to the chagrin of your own, to your own chagrin. I keep preaching things at you now and then. Not, not everyone wants to hear their mother. My mother would tell me stuff too. But it's still, I'm still the one person that can say certain things to you that no one else can say, and therefore my job will never be done for that reason. Done in the sense that I'm not responsible for your life, but not done in the sense that it is always my job to say maternal things to you. And no point will that end, barring death. <laughs> You'll be a father one day, presumably, and then I'll have a whole other topic of things that I'm going to dump in your lap as far as advice. You will be annoyed with some of it and grateful for some of it. But it's arming you with information. At no point can you ever say, and I've told you this, well, I didn't know. No one ever told me. That's been a driving motivator for me, is that my children can never tell me. I didn't tell them. You know, so you, you go into things knowing. I want to get back to something you said about maturing through life. Do you feel that it is the job of the experienced to provide knowledge to the future generations? Um, as far as the it takes a village to raise a child, which you're kind of touching on that topic, I believe that strongly. I think I can't turn a blind eye to... If I'm in a Tim Hortons, because we're up in Canada and Tim Hortons is the thing, <laughs> we're all addicted to Tim Hortons. It's actually very homey. Um, if I see if there's an incidence where, and maybe perhaps it's more of a helpful one, someone drops a hat, you pick it up. This is a simplistic um, intervention, but I think it can extrapolate to more philosophical ideas as well. Not everyone is receptive to advice. Um, and I've given advice before and people don't really want to hear it, and that's that's okay too. I try to give it when it's wanted, but the village raise a child philosophy, it doesn't wait to be asked. It sees a kid falls down and scrapes his knee. The nearest adult helps the kid up, pats the kid's knee with a Band-Aid and sends them on their way. Um, if there's a kid lost in the mall, you find that kid and you help the kid find their parent. This is the village raise a child philosophy. I think as a society, if we, if we sort of 
look and see a problem somewhere and we don't feel like it's our problem, that's a problem. Because they're in my environment. So it's like the Good Samaritan type thing too. I, I really don't know how people can walk past someone who's a human being and to ignore dire need or, you know, and of course, then you get the drop in the bucket. Can we really help everyone? And no, I can't help everyone. And and then people throw their hands up and go, well, I can't help everyone. So what's the point? Well, that one person, that's the point. It's, it's so interacting with one human being. That's the point. So I, I do, I do feel a sense of responsibility. I was teaching a few months back, a student, and she was saying how some teacher so-and-so was a terrible teacher in the building, and she just wasn't aware of her her anxiety needs, and she wasn't giving her space, and just really leaning on the whole, you know, I have this issue, and everyone needs to accommodate my issue, and I took that opportunity to give her some advice that I would have given any of you guys, which is, I said... You're launching yourself into a world of people who are not going to accommodate your needs. So the answer here is not expecting that teacher to accommodate your needs. The answer here is you learning how to accommodate your own needs. So if you need space, you need to learn how to say, I need space. If you say to someone, I need space, and they don't give it to you, then you need to learn how to be calm in yourself. You need to train yourself how to think yourself out of a difficult situation. That student got really mad at me. She got up and left the room and didn't go back. So that that's fine. I found out later she wasn't in my class. She was just there visiting her friend, which is funny. I mean, I guess I knew that at some point through the class, but that's an example of me giving advice to another one's, another adult's child, another parent's child. And I think of that part, that kid's parent, and I assume that that parent has taught that child that the world needs to accommodate her child. And I've always told you guys, and you, especially when we were talking about education in specific, and you saying you're this kind of learner or that kind of learner, and I would say to you, it is up to you to formulate the information that you're receiving in a palatable way, palatable way for you to absorb it. It is not up to the giver of information to make it taste all sweet and cherry on top so that you can swallow it. That's your job, right? So we live in a society of education in specific where it's all about accommodating this kid needs this, so you have to make a lesson plan this way, and you have to... This is not helping students. This is not helping our children. This is making them dependent and needy and whiny and good Lord, help me all, if we come out with a generation of kids who thinks the whole planet revolves around them. And I also have to talk about the me to we really quickly, which started out as a great idea, obviously thinking globally, right? And how we can impact and not thinking about yourself, thinking about the we from me to we. But what it's done, the negative, in my opinion, is it's made your generation think that everything you do has to matter. But unfortunately, a lot of what we do between 9 and 5, or 8 p.m. and 8 a.m. and 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., a lot of it doesn't matter and impact the globe, and that's okay. Your life doesn't have to impact the globe. 
But millennials were raised to believe their lives had to matter. They matter. They're going to impact the world. And it's a wonderful idea, but it has its place and it has its limits. And the downside to that philosophy, without it being taught in balance, is that a lot of people in your generation feel like nothing is worth doing unless it's impactful and satisfying and feeding me. And Nope, sorry. Sometimes you just need to pay the bills so that you can sleep in a bed and eat in a kitchen. And part of that is taking a job that you don't necessarily love, which means the rest of your life outside that job must become the joy that gives you meaning. But you can also turn the most boring job with the right attitude into a little bit less boring, bring in a sense of humor, be quirky, smile more, make a joke. Any of these things are tools that you have and that I have. Well, case in point, cancer. I can't tell you how many inappropriate jokes I've cracked going through tests. I've had mammograms and I've drank radiation and I've made all kinds of dick jokes. Sorry, Mom. Oh, uh, <laughs> right before you went under the knife the first time. Yes. Yes, you know. <laughs> um, and this is like, no one wants to have surgery and have their neck cut open for six hours. But you don't have to be sad about everything. And you can just bring your, your personality into wherever you are. And if I can teach you anything, that is a big thing to teach you. Every job has its deltrums. A lot of times our brains aren't being maximized. As a supply teacher, in no way is my brain being utilized. Like I'm a babysitter. I, and I love it. I think I like interacting with kids. And someone's got to be there when teachers can't be there. And it has to be an educator. I have to be trained to do it. So... But I am basically a babysitter with a nice degree, and I get a good paycheck for doing it. Because you wouldn't just stick anyone in a classroom. You can't. There's liabilities and training. But if, if, I, if I needed everything I did to make my brain stimulated, I would do nothing. But then that wouldn't be stimulating either. So it's all, you know, that's... Your generation needs to learn en masse that sometimes menialness, menial jobs... Have a purpose for a while. If you don't like it, get training, get more education, get more experience, do something to move upward, onward, outward, you know, but there's no shame in working at Tim Hortons for a while to pay the bills, so to speak, because we all love to Hortons coffee. What do you think about the concept that teachers are undervalued by society? Yeah, I challenge anyone to put their butt in a high school math class or, or worse yet, a French class, because French teachers, nobody likes French class. Nobody likes it. It's sad, but nobody likes it. Teachers don't like it. Parents don't like it. Students don't like it. I taught French to grade seven and eights. They didn't like it. Teachers didn't like it. Principal didn't like it. Nobody wants to come near French, and nobody likes math. Very few people like math. I love math. I'm a math teacher. Um, what was your question again? <laughs> I got a lot of sidetracked. Uh, undervalued teachers. Oh, yeah. But I, cha I challenge anyone who thinks uh, teachers are teachers. overpaid. Oh, they have their summers off. Oh, they're so lucky. Sit in a classroom 
have someone call you a C-U-N-T, someone throws a book at you. Now, these are extremes, but they have happened. Kids are, kids can be rude, disrespectful. They ignore you. Um, they're, they're entitled. You've heard that. Your generation gets overpegged with the entitlement word, but sadly, it's there. And it's not easy. And I say, pay the teachers their money unless you want to go sit in their seat. There's no job more important than raising our children. And the school system is blamed for a lot of our issues, but nobody looks at the home system and blames the home system as the root of all issues. Mm -hmm. I think that bad kids have bad parents. Oftentimes, yes. There are kind of rogue experiences where you say, well, I'm pretty sure those parents did a pretty good job, but that kid just went sideways. And that does happen. But I think you kind of, you get what you pay for. And that's a, that applies to parenting. Parenting, and this is what your grandmother used to tell me, my mother used to say, if you don't have the energy to enforce a rule that is important, and we're not talking like health safety, we're talking about um, I told you not to play video games between 4 and 5 p.m. Oh, he's gone and turned it on. Nana used to say, if you're too tired to enforce the rule, you better pretend you didn't see it. Otherwise, you're teaching your child that you've made a rule and now you're breaking your own rule, that you're too lazy to enforce it. That always stuck with me. And when you were young, I did apply that. Some days I would be sick and I would literally pretend I didn't see you go grab a cookie. Not that we ever really had cookies, mm -hmm. but because I was too tired or too sick to enforce the rule. And you don't want to teach you don't want to teach your kids that you're going to make a rule and then renege on the consequence that you've told them. So, keeping your word to your child is important. Keeping your word consequentially, and also keeping your word as far as um, if you clean your room, I will take you for a walk. Keep your word. Don't be lazy. Get your butt off the couch. That kid cleaned his room. Go up and check it. Appraise them, and then take them for a walk. That's how you get. Kids who rely on you, and Nana used to always say, your child needs to know that you're telling the truth and that you're dependable and that they can predict. Actually, Nana didn't say this part. I read in a textbook, kids need to be able to predict their parents' behavior. That's really interesting. So you as a child would know that if you did X, Y, Z after I have said, Josh, if you do X, Y, Z, this is going to happen to you. You're going to lose Super Nintendo for the day or whatever. The kids need to know that if they, if you play Nintendo when I told you not to, that I'm now going to take Nintendo away like I said I would. And interestingly, and this is in child raising psychology books, when kids can predict their parents' behavior, they feel safe. They feel protected. We're not here to be our kids' friends. We're here to be our kids' protectors and to raise our kids and to teach them. And that doesn't happen with laziness. So you get what you pay for in energy. I paid a lot in energy to raise you and to raise your brothers. You were more work because of who you are. You're an interactor with the environment. So you, you physically, literally were more work. And as an adult child of mine, you are still more work in the sense that you need to understand things 
and you ask me more questions a lot of the time than your brothers do just because they're different than you are. So work isn't a negative thing. Um, so I like the work. We're going to call it work. I like it. Um, but you you are who you are, um, and you know the differences. But, yeah, for sure, you get what you pay for mm-hmm. in parenting. Still talking about your job because you, oh, yeah. you stopped teaching because you didn't like that, but you did it for a time and you stuck mm-hmm. with it because mm-hmm. you said that sometimes you just got to do something to pay the bills. You do. Right now you found a really interesting job that's engaging for you. Yeah, I love Challenging it. in the right ways, creative. Go into detail about that. Yeah, well, that's and thanks for asking that. That's my my mother passed on to me this forensic document examination business, and I grew up watching her examine handwriting. And um, she was on television. She was on the radio. She was by the time by the time she got out of the business recently, she was very well known in southwestern Ontario for the work. Um, so she's. Pass it on to me, and her mother did it as well. So it's third generation. It's, it's I do love it. It's fascinating. It's analytical. It employs a lot of my my natural mental abilities, and you know brings in some of the sort of mathy thinking and the psychology training I've got that comes into play as well. And um, education, even I think, just sort of education is never a waste. Nana always said that, and it isn't. You have an education. And it's never a waste. It doesn't matter that you're not working in your field, quote-unquote. But it's the the training of your mind, like going to the gym. Education is never a waste. So I bring in my previous training and education into this handwriting examination business. And it it does utilize my mind, and it's very fulfilling. I absolutely love it. And I'm filled with gratitude that my mother built such a such an empire. I mean, I'm not rich from it, um, but I have enough from it. And that's all we really need is enough. Do we need to be rich? I don't think so. So it is, uh, yeah, I'm lucky. It's fulfilling, but I'm, again, I'm in my late forties and it's taken, I wasn't in my late twenties when I had a fulfilling job. Well, I was a mother. Mm-hmm. It wasn't fulfilling. <laughs> no offense. That's right. It was not a fulfilling job. I can say now it's a fulfill- fulfilling in hindsight because I see the trophy before me, you being the trophy of 26 years of my work. Uh, now it's fulfilling, but when you were two, no, it was not fulfilling. <laughs> Some mothers would find it fulfilling, but I'm not a homebody. I was never maternally driven. I hated babysitting. I didn't like children. So, you know, you really got you really got a stinker of a mother. At the beginning. <laughs> but um, my uniqueness is what raised you, and so it's, you know you can't regret it. What have you learned through your experience in the courts that you think could apply to your life on a macro scale? Above all, honesty. That is probably the hugest takeaway. The world is full of people who are not honest with themselves or with others who try to cheat or steal in the end I, I do believe it catches up with people eventually if they're not honest with themselves that's more damaging if they're not honest with others it damages relationships and if they're thieving um, they're, they're you just eventually you get caught um, but probably the biggest takeaway is the value of of a true word and an honest person. 
And um, in the courts, you know, you see people who I know are lying because I know what I know from the handwriting. And they're scrambling in their lie to just try to stay afloat. That's just a sad way to live. Don't do it. <laughs> you know, people, there's a lot of value in honesty, and I think integrity comes from that. And when you ask yourself, even if you're a dishonest person, if I'm a dishonest person, I say, what kind of person do I want to be around? Is it? Am I going to say a liar? No. So even though I may be a liar, I don't want to be around liars. I'm not going to trust a liar. And if I'm a dishonest person or a crooked person, I'm still going to value integrity in somebody else. So why not just be that person? Have that integrity. Nobody wants to be around someone without integrity. Nobody. You're an interesting young man. Thank you. <laughs> I really like you. It's quite cool to raise children and to like them when you're done. <laughs> because you, sometimes you see adults and you think, does your mother even like you? Like, really? How could she? And I, that sounds mean, but I'm really being blunt because that's who I am as a person. I'm very honest and blunt and probably too blunt sometimes. But I can look at you guys, you three boys and you three young men, and I like each of you. I actually like you. If I wasn't your mother, I'd probably want to be your friend because I think you're cool. And I think Jonah is cool and I think Jordan's cool. And I've, I feel happy that I have played a part in creating an adult such as you three. I can't take all the credit because a lot of it comes from who you guys are as well. Um, and of course you have a father and 50% of your genes come from him. Mm. So, you know, it's really cool to like your kids and I like you and I like your brothers and yeah, I just think that's just, it's just a really great revelation. Jordan Peterson says, if you don't like your kid, nobody else will. <laughs> and if you don't like your kid, it's kind of your fault. And so what you should do as uh, a parent is your job to make your kid likable and make sure that they're pursuing hobbies and doing things that make them interesting to other people. And you want to iron out characteristics that will make people not like them. Above all, you need to make your kid likable and you need to like your kid. <laughs> That's interesting. I like Jordan Peterson and I haven't heard that, but... Interestingly, when I was pregnant with you, my first child, and then when you were born, I mean, I said at the beginning, I was mad that I was pregnant because I, I just felt really robbed of youth. I felt, I felt like I was never going to have a life after that. I was trapped and all these negative emotions um, that are just a byproduct of being a mother's, you can't just go do what you want to do willy-nilly because now you got this pound of flesh that you got to take with you everywhere in a car seat. But I remember in my brain thinking to myself, well, damn it, if I have to have kids, they better be good kids. And they're not going to be those annoying kids that no one wants to be around and that I don't want to be around. So I thinking the exact same thing that Jordan Peterson said 26 years ago when you were born. If I'm going to do this, then you're not going to be an annoying kid. You are going to learn 
to be likable. And that is a skill. Now, not everyone likes everyone, obviously. But um, I, I remember forcing you to say hello to people. Mm-hmm. Literally putting my hand on your chin and moving you like a puppet because you refused to say hello to so-and-so who walked in the door. And I would make you go, hello. <laughs> or say thank you, forcing you to say thank you. Forcing you physically with my fingers on your chin, pulling your mouth down and saying the thank you word while your mouth moved like you were a puppet, which seemed really weird to do. I've never seen anyone do that before. My mother didn't do that to me. (laughs) Um, Probably because I said thank you, but uh, it worked. And when you refused to pick up your toys, I literally took your hand, you might remember this, with my hand as you're basically kicking and screaming and mad, forcing your hand to pick up toys one painfully at a time and putting it in the toy bucket. This was as painful for me as it was for you. But that's an example of making your kids likable at the age of two. In order for me to like you at the age of two, you had to pick up your toys. Yeah. Otherwise, I didn't like you very much. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you extrapolate that to teens and even adults. And I know I've said things to you as an adult man where it's like, you shouldn't do this to that person. You shouldn't say, and you get annoyed and, you know, but ultimately who else is going to tell you that? Me. (laughs) It's, you know, mothers can get away with saying things that make sense that no one wants to hear. Can you go into detail about other things, unique things that you think you've done raising us? Um, yeah, I guess those would be some. I was (laughs) humorously, I'm going to say, remember, graduating high school and the whole victory lap thing Mm. uniquely to me we called it what a loser lap a loser lap (laughs) (laughs) why do we call it a loser lap josh because losers stay in high school (laughs) (laughs) because you didn't do it right the first time yeah so if you have to do grade 12 again (laughs) which is what the victory lap became known for oh i'm going to take a few more courses a lot of kids just stay there because they were too chicken to just get out and do something else me, when I was in school, high school was five years. I, I squeezed it all into four because I wanted to get out and get on to things that meant more. When you guys, you had a four-year high school and p- kids were doing it in five. I'm like, what the heck? You guys are bananas. You remember that conversation with my friend's I, parents? Sh- yes, we were standing, yes, standing outside of grad with Chase's parents you guys are all, and I'm like, yeah, you know, they're coming back for the loser lap. And Chase's parents are like, oh, no, we're really glad he's coming back. He's not ready. I'm like, what? Good Lord. <laughs> ready? What does ready have to do with life? Who's well, lo- who's ready for life? There's something, too. I now believe that post-secondary education is very important. Yes. But I think it's coming too soon. I think that, uh, imagine this with me, like, if it is now common for once kids past high school, you're like, what, 17, 18? You're 18, 18 when you're done. Yeah, 18 when you're done. as you don't take a loser Assuming lap. you don't take a loser <laughs> lap, yeah. Um, once kids graduate high school, imagine it becomes very commonplace to spend three years working anything but not going to post-secondary and waiting. and and Because maturity comes in those years, right? It does, yeah. Um, and that's just through natural brain development. What do you think would be the pros of everybody waiting three years to go into university? I would say 
firstly, that I'm not sure that would be good for everyone. I think one year might be plenty. Um, I may have benefited from one year because I squeezed five years into four, so I fast-tracked my high school career because I wanted to get to university because I knew university meant something, and I knew high school didn't mean anything. Now, nothing big. Like Everyone goes to high school. Not everyone goes to university, and not everyone studies the same thing in university. Therefore, university has more meaning. Or college. There's nothing wrong with college. Um, yeah, so, but I don't think the answer is a fifth year of high school. This is, to me, a total waste. A daycare for teenagers. I am very, very alone in that canoe of thinking. Because parents... I hear loads of parents even now saying, oh, no, they're not quite ready. Another year would be great. I really want them to stay home. Okay, we don't raise our kids to stay home. What did I tell you when you moved out? Probably oh, lots of things. I can't remember, yeah. I remember saying, make sure you can move out and stay out because you don't come back. When you move out, you stay out. And you, I remember saying, um, and the other one was uh, on your 18th birthday. Uh, you're no longer my problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's another responsibility. That's another Natalie mom thing is happy birthday. You're legally not my responsibility. Anything you get from now on is a gift. A gift. Exactly. I love that you remember these things. And I told that to your brothers. Each one of you, John, the youngest is 19, so everyone's heard it. Now you did come back briefly after you moved out because you needed a week or two yeah. to in between places. So again, these are broad spectrum Natalie rules, there are exceptions. If you'd been in law school or med school, I would have no issue supporting you through that. But in general, what we have are kids living at home far too long. And what's the excuse? Oh, no one can afford a house. Housing prices are up. Well, that's a pile of BS. doesn't matter where the housing market goes. The housing market is supply and demand. So eventually, they're going to build more houses. There's going to be lots of houses, prices come down, you buy. I mean, everything is cyclical. People panic. Oh, the housing prices are up. Well, just wait. They're going to come down. You know, like there's always something to buy at some point. But the answer is not, well, we better live with our parents till we're 35 and the housing market gets fixed. No. What's the other thing I said about sex? If you're old enough to have sex... You're old enough to pay rent. Oh, okay, yeah. And that's why you moved out, you said. Yeah. You're like, I want my own place I so I can do place, what I want. Yeah. But that's what I've said to all three of you. Don't bring your girlfriends home. I don't know what the heck is wrong with parents who let girlfriends and boyfriends. Now, I'm going to have a lot of people mad at me for saying that. But I think sex is an adult thing. And I think paying rent is an adult thing. And I'm not saying there aren't exceptions. But I am saying... Now, the exception has become the rule. Kids are staying home. They're living under their parents' roofs for no really good reason. Their girlfriends and boyfriends are just basically living there, too. It's like a... No. Get out. If I'm 70-whatever, and I need reliable adults to take care of me, you guys, mm -hmm. I'm not going to have that if I maintain adult babies, adult children who I'm looking after until you're well into your 30s and 40s. This is an epidemic. I've lost friends over this for saying, shouldn't your son get his own apartment now? 
If he's getting high on weed but not paying rent, don't you see a problem with that? And I've people have they've unfriended me on Facebook for that. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. dun dun dun. Now I don't even have Facebook. I don't even miss it. But um these things make me, I guess, unique as a parent because most parents don't agree with me. Can you think of any other unique things that you've done over the 20 years raising me or, say, Jonah or Jordan? I don't know. That... Can you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think. I know. Well, yeah, I mean, it, me in particular, I can really only comment on, um, yeah. like, when I had Shauna over, we were laying on the trampoline in the backyard. Any, no horizontal. Any, no horizontal. <laughs> any door, bedroom that, door open. Bedroom door open. Yeah, I think that one's pretty common. But You know what's unique, specifically with you? Mm. And I've told this story to high school students because they'll complain about their, oh, my mom, my mom or my dad got, got grounded. They took away my Xbox. I went, oh, yeah? What did I take away from you? My door. And? And my rug and my dresser. Mattress? Ma- my mattress. Your lamp? My lamp, everything. <laughs> I had a box spring. I had a box spring and a desk <laughs> and a dresser. And why did I do that? Because I deserved it. Disrespect was Disrespect, the biggest thing. yeah. It wasn't so much that you have a different opinion. It's how you respectfully or disrespectfully express that and you also got kicked out at 16 for a weekend and what did i say when i kicked you out i can't remember i said when you come back make sure you knock because i don't know if i want you back oh yeah now that was very hard to say to you when you left i was in tears Uh, so was i and when you came back to the door for your shoes what did i say Mm, you're fine without (laughs) shoes or something like that i said who bought those shoes oh yeah (laughs) They're my shoes. So you had to walk to your in your socks to Chase's I house. I walked to Chase's house, yeah. And you stayed the weekend, and when you came back on Sunday, you knocked on the door, and you said, can I come home? And of course I said yes, and I gave you a huge hug and told you I missed you. That's abnormal. If I'm to compare my behavior to other parents that I know of, that tough love scenario is not common. And it could, And Nana got very mad at me. Dad got very mad at me. It could have gone, my biggest fear was that you'd go live on the street, get a bunch of tattoos and body piercings, start drugs, and I'd never see you again. I was petrified that that's what was going to happen. But I also knew I couldn't have a 16-year-old boy, soon to be 17, living in my house, talking to me the way you spoke. Couldn't. No. You know, you don't get to do that. So... I don't know how other parents manage that stuff, but I do know that when I've told this story, I told the story of me taking your door, your mattress, your mm-hmm. lamp, your rug. Yeah. Kids are like, you took your son's mattress? What did he sleep on? I said, the box spring. They're just stunned. So, Because the one kid was saying, well, I don't think there's anything else my mother could take. I went, oh, yes, yeah. there is. <laughs> and then I said, but I mean, realistically, I've never heard of anyone else doing that. Nana didn't do that. Um, I think I did it because you were ungrateful. Oh, yeah. And I thought, well, I'm going to show him what gratitude is, you know, all these luxuries that you have. By law, I'm only required to feed you, put a roof over your head, and not beat you. Mm -hmm. Under the age of 18, I'm not allowed to beat you. I'm supposed to feed you, and I have to give you a place to sleep. Those are my legal obligations as a parent. And that's what was in my brain when I took away all those things out of your bedroom. Legally, he's got a bed, he's got food, and I haven't beat him. So, 
You were grateful after that when I you got was, your door yeah. back. <laughs> and when you came back after I kicked you out, you never, ever spoke to me like that again. Well, and what a humbling experience, being kicked out with yeah. no shoes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and having We had to door. tell people it was June, so it's not like it, it was... It was June. Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> I, I just walked over to yeah. Chase's house and borrowed a pair of his. But yeah, yeah it was very humbling having to come back and say, Can, may I come back and live mm-hmm. here, you know, and asking. And, and I remember about my door, like, you were mad. I think I was real mad, but I think, I think you were, t- you told me, you know, sh- a few years later that had I asked for it back nicely, you would have, I, yep, I yeah, that same day you would have given you it back had to me. So much attitude. So much anger. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting thinking back to that. Mm-hmm. point because you wouldn't humble yourself I, I wouldn't humble myself no. you know and so oh. oh another thing sorry I cut you yeah. off um do you remember what happened when you said you were bored oh yeah <laughs> when I was a kid and I would say I'm bored mom would make me I'd know, say first I said go find, go find something, something to, to do, do. <laughs> or I'll find you something yeah. to do and if I didn't find myself something to do, which in me being Stubborn. rebellious about everything, I would say, I can't think of anything to do. Blah, blah, blah. And mom would be like, all right, well, here's a, here's bucket. a bucket and a sponge. You're going to wash the ca- the kitchen cabinets. Yes, because the drip, the drips from food. The drips from food. And then after about 25 to 30 minutes of me washing. Scrubbing with a sponge. Scrubbing with a sponge. I mom, said. Mom came in. Are you still bored? And I said. I said, have you thought of anything else said, to do? Have you thought of anything else to do? And I said, no. <laughs> and I was like, great. Well, you can wash the stove now. <laughs> yeah, and I think you ended up washing the bathroom floor. Mm. And then when I said, can you think of anything to do now, Josh? You went, yes. <laughs> and you stopped telling me you were bored. Yeah. You might have said it once. And I said, do you need me to give you something to do? No. And you disappear. But Nana, that was from Nana. Nana used to. Don't tell me you're bored, because I'm going to find you something to do. What else did you apply that, that Nana did? Um, love and affection. I say, we say all these hard, tough love things, and you were tough loved, raised. But they did come on the heels and partnered with a lot of physical affection. I kissed and hugged you all the time, told you I loved you all the time. Applauded you all the time when you did good things. So we can't do these hard, tough love things without a foundation of physical love and affection so that our child knows that we love them. They don't question whether we love them. And then we can have tough love and that kid can say, well, I know my mother loves me. And this really sucks. Kind of like... Remember when you wrote that's that was it a suicide note? Uh or a running oh, away I can't note. Remember. Or, yeah, well, you wrote I, a note. I, I wanna be dead. You said, I wish I was dead. I'm you know, and you ran away. You you wrote a note saying, I've run away from home, don't come look for me. And your room was empty. My room was empty. I popped the screen out of the yeah. the window and that was the most I still feel bad about that. That was the most most heartbreaking thing I've ever experienced. Cause? Because because as soon as so I was hiding under the bed, and as soon as I heard you came in, you were like Josh, you know, and and you had you had love in your voice when you came in. You're like, hey Josh, and you saw that the screen was popped out, 
and you started crying, and I was like, fuck, I did not. <laughs> I thought you were going to get angry, and I would be like, yeah, I won. I made my mom angry, but you started, got real emotional, and yeah. then I heard, you, you ran out the door, you grabbed your keys, you ran outside, and I was like, shit, this is not what I planned, <laughs> and then I yelled out the window, I was like, wait, mom, come back, wait, no, I'm, I'm, I'm right so here. you did that. And then, and, yeah. Because I was going to find you. You were going to go find me, and, yeah. and, and that, I, that was groundbreaking to me, because I, Realize my mom loves me. She's you know, she, she doesn't mean anything bad. That and makes my tear up. No, it was and then and then you came back in and we we had a real heart-to-heart -heart and and it was That was probably the most impactful. I still feel bad about that <laughs> <laughs> That was the most impactful thing yeah. that that is happened In our relationship, I think I mean even even greater than more impactful on me even greater than um, but the time you kicked me out right before I moved out. Um, yeah. The time you kicked me out, I went to Nana's house for, uh -huh. for like, I think. That's right, yeah. Four or five days. Yeah. I stayed at Alyssa's house and yeah. Nana's house. And um, that was when I punched the hole in my door. And, yeah. And um, that was, I think, our biggest. We tussled what's the a word? lot. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we, we, we fought a lot. But that was, that was our biggest explosion. What would you call that? Were Issue, you running fight? away? Me, well, me, no, 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 me, um, when you kicked me out, when I punched the hole in the door, broke yeah. that mirror. Yeah, yeah, that was, that the, was the biggest, biggest event, yeah. but, like, the most impactful event was me pretending to run away. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's interesting. Um, I think that's a sign of our healthy relationship. The fact that as a child, you were mature enough to see love and to hear love in that interaction. And that as a mother, I was just desperate to go find you. And you saw the action and realized mm -hmm. the depth of a mother's love for you. And again, all that tough love stuff really did carry with it a foundation of serious love and affection. And um, I mean, even though I was angry that I was pregnant way back when and I didn't want to be a mother and I didn't love kids, you were hugely loved anyway, which is really, I guess... A lesson or a, a sign of people have kids and they may not be ready, but it doesn't mean they can't love them, and they certainly do. Like, um, say again the thing that Nana told you about you. Not she wanting said, to be "Yeah, when I was complaining to Nana, whoops, about um, how feeling sorry for myself, self pity. Oh, my life is over. I've got this baby. I can't do anything fun. Wah wah wah." Nana would say. Nana said. Josh did not ask to be born. He's here. You suck it up and be a mother. That's your job. You know how to have baby. You know how to make babies. You know, that's your problem. So she did not make any room for self-pity. She would not have any of it. And that that's something that my mother said to me that always stuck with me. And she said, Josh did not ask to be here. I was like, yeah, okay, I mean, I can't just be an asshole of a mother. I might have to beep that out. Mm -hmm. um, can't be selfish. You're a parent, you can't be selfish. That's, that was tough love from my mother, and I was an adult. I was 20, well, I wasn't as adult as you. I was 21 when you were born. I was 21 years old, and she just said, nope, you, you raise that baby. You be a mother. So I realized 
Okay, well, I have to, I have to, I have to stop whining. There's no productivity there. Take me back to the time that you shook me. Oh, gosh, that was horrible. You wouldn't stop crying. You were... I didn't, didn't really know much about this whole shaking baby thing either. I don't even know if I knew what that was. I'm trying to think. I might have, I guess. But anyway, yeah, you wouldn't stop crying. You were exhausting. I was exhausted. You did not sleep through the night. I did not sleep through the night. You compound that day after day after day. You're talking sleep deprivation. And yeah, this one time you just, dad was gone. Like dad was a hard worker and he was always, we were in school and working at the same time. And I was just home with you. You just would not stop crying. I could not get any peace. So I was in your room, and you, I'm trying to put you to bed, and you were still crying and crying and crying and crying. I picked you up and said, stop crying, and I started to shake this baby who was, you might have been two months, three months old, for literally a second, maybe, which is kind of a long time, but, mm-hmm. but not really. And I immediately realized what I was doing. You're just a baby. I put you down, I shut the door, you're still crying, of course, because my stress was in you as well, like you're feeling, babies feel their parents' stress. Teenagers feel their parents' stress. People who are staying married for the kids but are living in misery, I'm not convinced that's healthy, but anyway, I went to my room and I shut the door. You're crying, I'm in my room crying, I just knew at that point You can't shake a baby. I think I knew. I must have known what it was, shaking baby syndrome. But I also knew I'm going to go crazy. Like I wanted to throw you against a wall because you wouldn't (laughs) shut up. But of course, you're just a baby. Babies don't shut up. I changed you. You're fed. I just needed you to sleep. You wouldn't sleep for whatever reason is in a baby. That was a low point of childhood in my life. I was just like... Dad came home and he's like, what's wrong? And I was like, he wouldn't stop crying. I shook him and then I put him down. And Because I think dad came home and you were still in your room mm-hmm. crying probably or red-faced and snotty, whatever. Didn't kill you. You're fine. But yeah. shaking you was a bad idea. But it's, you know, it's funny that in that exhaustion, there's a presence of mind to go, okay, wait a minute. Put this baby down and leave the room. Because that's better than the alternative, which is shaking or... Her, you know, Mm. you just feel so angry that this baby won't stop. And that's the honesty of an exhausted mother. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. It is brutal. A single mother even worse because you don't even have someone to tag off with. So that was, uh, that was very tough. I never, ever, ever did that again. And from that point forward, if I felt myself at that level of frustration, I simply just put you down put a stuffed animal in there or crib and just left you safe, like in the crib safe. Because, uh, like you have to regain your sanity, sanity as a mother. You, you simply can't parent when you're going bananas. That's a lot of stuff. You remember the swing? Thank God for wind up swings back in the day. It didn't have a battery. It had a wind up. That is the only place that you would shut up. 
<laughs> is the swing. I put you in there, and serenity befell the house, and you, and me, and um, you would s- fall asleep swinging that thing for hours. You loved it so much that Nana had one. And she babysat you and you'd be in the swing. She actually went to the mall and left you there and realized halfway to the mall she left you in the swing and came back and found you in the swing. Sleeping. Sleeping. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you love the swing, that swing. But Jonah didn't love it. Jordan didn't love it. It's only you. Which makes sense when you're stimulus responsive to your environment that the swing would work for you. When you think logically how that works, kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Can you think of other life hacks you wish you knew when you were like similar to the swing i was thinking fondly of how i used to prop you up in the rocking chair and we'd watch star trek oh yeah but you were you wouldn't remember because you were like six months old you could barely sit up i'd put pillows all around you you and i would sit and watch star trek at 7 p.m from 7 to 8 p.m star trek time (laughs) so that was fun it was just you and i a lot of the things we did was just you and me Mm -hmm. by the time your brothers come they were deprived of as, as crazy and as untrained I was as I was as a mother. You did have me all to yourself. Your brothers didn't have that luxury. Uh, so there's a bond that goes with that that's unique because you're the first one and there was only one. Um, but each child has a unique bond. Jonah let me sleep. Mm-hmm. We bonded over sleep, so... Um, and Jordan, he was five years apart from Jonah, so there was some time there. But yeah, so that that was good. You know, there was a lot of good times. You know, Dad used to put the spaghetti strainer on his head and make mm-hmm. you laugh. Yeah, you had a great laugh. You interacted with people. You were very. You had a lot of personality. Um, so you were a fun baby, but you were a lot of work. But we took you everywhere. Mm-hmm. Specifically with you, we were the only people with kids. We anything we could do, we just dragged you right on along with us. Prop, propped up a playpen, but you just you slept everywhere. So you you were very, you know, malleable, very you know, adaptable. Adaptable. And that comes with being sort of a firstborn who gets dragged around all over the place. I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier about being in midlife. I think you mentioned this um, a while ago about talking about like divorce. Say like you're constantly maturing through mm-hmm. life. Um, and I think it's really impactful what you said about marriage and about marriage in, in general and how it's it's it, you, you and dad were right for each other at 20, that time, at yeah. that time, 20 something years ago. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and as you guys matured through life, because life brings real experience to mm. you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, the, the divorce issue is an interesting one because people always attribute it as a failure but I don't, I used to feel that way, but I don't, I simply don't classify divorce as a failure anymore. I see it as a success, as a success for X amount of years. And why does um, forever have to be the only value in a relationship? Why, why can't for now be okay? Why is that less valuable than forever? I mean, forever, come on, mm-hmm. let's be real. Who can promise anything forever? Really? Especially when you're 20. You simply can't. You start off with good intentions. Some people make it. Some people don't. But why is that the only good marriage? One that lasts forever. Is it good if it lasts forever but the two people can't stand each other anymore? 
they didn't divorce, so somehow that's better than, say, Dad and I, who lasted 20 years. We raised three great kids and, you know, didn't work forever, so who cares? Do Does that mean that Dad's not valuable? No. Or that our marriage wasn't valuable? No. It just means it worked for us at that time, and I mean, it's a nice goal to say let's love each other forever, and Dad and I still love each other. It's just different. But I was telling Jonah one time, is it better to stay together and dislike each other or separate and learn to like each other? There's more value in being apart and being supportive and amenable and kind than being together and being resentful and angry. Like, one comes with a contract where you stayed married. One comes with a broken contract, so to speak, where you divorced. But for some reason, society feels that staying married is the right option. People are afraid. Kids survive divorce. A kid surviving divorce is completely a function on how parenting is done during and after that divorce. Parents can't become selfish. They have to stay aware. They have to stay, you know, keep, keep their head about them and keep their wits about them. I'm not promoting divorce. I'm simply saying it's not always the worst thing ever. Um, and so that's probably one of my midlife realizations is the, the misconception that relationship values are only really existing in a forever scenario. I simply don't believe that anymore. Who I am now is different than who I was. It's different than who I will be, probably. So how is one man supposed to morph in concert with me and me with him for 50 years? That's really improbable, statistically speaking. What do you think prospecting couples should consider when choosing a spouse? Um, I think that life philosophy is an important thing that must be in it. Like, you have to value the same kinds of things philosophically. And you have to be headed in the same direction or a similar direction to start off with. But for people to stay together, I feel that they have to know and understand that change is inevitable and evolution of a person. I mean, assuming you're not marrying someone really stupid who never, ever does anything different or change or grow. And I don't say stupid in a derogatory way. I just, some people are smart and some people aren't. And there's different, there's a scale of smartness. And I think smarter people probably evolve faster or more. And, um, you know, as you and, and Jess go through your marriage life, whatever that is, for however long that is, and you have the goals that it lasts a really long time, because that's what we all aim for, I think part of the reason people can be successful is they are accepting of, they're accepting of the other person for who they are, but in your mind you have to know they may not always be this, and maybe they're going to be, be they're going to evolve. And now people don't typically change night and day, but they do evolve. 
And I don't think we want to inhibit each other from growing or evolving either, because if you inhibit your partner or spouse, they're going to be resentful. And resentment and jealousy, if you're jealous of your partner or spouse, too proud, these things kill love. Pride, jealousy, resentment, they destroy love. So if anyone feels these things in themselves, they have to understand it's going to tear down the love that they actually have and that that person has for them. You can't... Like if, if Jess has a great success in her job and it's she, she propels herself upward far faster than you do and you become filled with resentment because she's more successful at this particular work than you are, that's going to erode. It's like rust on a car. It's going to erode the very foundation that keeps you together and you will no longer be together if that persists long in a long... You have to learn to deal with these negative emotions. Part of the tool is saying, well, why do I need to be jealous of her? Do I need to be her? No. Do I need to have her successes? Do I need to be threatened by her success? No. Make your own. Like, that's hers. You make yours. You be proud of her. She be proud of you. Don't be resentful and don't be jealous and understand. And, you know... This is what keeps people together. You're still loving the person they become. She's not always going to be the way she is. You're not always going to be with the way you are. Hopefully, you don't want to stay the same. You're 26 now. You'll be 36 soon. You don't want to be the same. You want to be different. You want to be grown 10 years older, 10 years wiser, 10 years more experienced. And those experiences shape where you travel and how you feel. And, you know, I think with the right tools... You can stay together and stay married productively. You know, but it does take two. It doesn't take one to keep a marriage. It takes two. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, prospectively, I think people need to understand. And I think it's, and I think I told you this at one point, it's important to reassess your marriage and say, honestly, and this may or may not be a popular way to think or be, does the marriage still work? Are we still happy? And not frivolously, like, oh, she rolls the toilet paper the wrong way and that drives me bananas, or he rolls the toothpaste. No, these are stupid things. When I talk about this, I'm talking about big things. Things that are huge, that you they're insurmountable. Like, you know, does it still work? Well, I want to go in this direction, and she wants to go in that direction. Literally, you could say, well, I want to live in Hawaii, and she wants to live in British Columbia. Well, it's pretty hard to stay married that way. But if you translate that practical, tangible difference into more emotional differences or personality differences, the same thing applies. Do our personalities clash or do they complement and blend? Can we make them blend? Do I want to bend her direction? Does she want to bend in my direction? Do we want to alter our tracks to stay together? What would you suggest if me or another couple was in a position where, not necessarily moving to different places, but there were two um, philosophical points or life goals that are not harmonious with one another. How do you, how would you suggest a couple approaches a situation like that? Well, I think the biggest question, the biggest question is, Do I like this life goal more than I want to stay together? If the life goals of two people become divergent, 
the question becomes, is this goal more important than staying with this person? I'm not sure that we need to feel bad if the answer is yes or no or whatever, you know, like... I think that there's a lot of blame in marriage and in the ending of marriage and there's a lot of pressure to stay married and to be perfect and happily ever after and I think we should a marriage should never inhibit someone's personal growth. So if I can help my spouse experience the world and feel fulfilled, why would I not do that? The risk is that that experience could pull them away from me. But if I love someone, I don't want to limit them. And we're not talking about like open relationships, so we're not going to mm-hmm. get into that whole sexual stuff, but just as far as even personal growth or adventure or experiences, if I start placing limits on my spouse's or partner's ability to experience the planet and to grow and to feel joy, then my own selfishness becomes more important than my love for... My love for them becomes less important than my love for myself. But I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, well, this matters more to me, actually, than our union. Now, that's not easy to say. That wouldn't be easy to hear. But if that's the honest truth, then I believe honesty should prevail over anything. Because otherwise, if we're not honest with our spouse, do we even have a marriage or a partnership? No. I don't want someone staying with me out of pity or out of obligation. Choose me and stay with me because you want to be with me. Otherwise, go do your thing. And I think that people are afraid to be alone, and so they they compensate. And sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes it's not a good thing. Because then resentment, resentment creeps in. It's very... It's very small, it's insidious, it's quiet. Little by little, it builds up if you don't deal with it. Small things can be, um, oh, I want to put the couch over here, she wants it over there. She wins. Every time I look at the couch, I feel resentment. Well, my advice to you is get over it and suck it up. It's a piece of furniture who gives a crap, right? This is, that's a stupid thing to fight over. Maybe you take turns every six months. You get to pick where the furniture goes, and then she gets to pick. Mm-hmm. There's always a compromise. If you're married to someone who's not compromising, then I think there's a problem. And if 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 someone if you're a person who's uncompromising, I think that's a problem. Can I share one of my relationship fears with you? Mm-hmm. I have a fear, and this is only I've only realized this recently. I'm afraid that Jess is gritting and bearing it at at points in the relationship. Say, for instance, like s- simple things like um, when we shower together. Mm-hmm. Showering with a woman is fun when you're first dating, but then it gets impractical. Impractical, because like obviously she takes the hot water, and we have to stand in the cold and get this nice, fine, cool mist. Dad and that, I used to take yeah. turns. Yeah, but anyways, <laughs> so uh, when it's my turn to say wash my armpits or get in the water, I'm afraid that the splash off of me is getting it, bothering her. So I'm afraid of bothering her, but she's staying silent and she's just gritting and bearing it because. So I have a fear of being the cause of her unhappiness, of her discomfort. And so often I won't, like Jess doesn't like being touched um, in bed. She likes complete isolation. And so uh, only recently have I started doing that again, but like out of fear of bothering her and 
her just gritting and burying it and and hating it. Like so, I I stopped you know touching her well. She's sleeping, sleeping, yeah. even though it made me feel comfortable. Comfortable. I didn't want to do that to bother her. Right. And in the shower, like I I am afraid to mm-hmm. take up the water because I want her to. I want to give her the best, and I right. want my wife to be to be happy. I want to mm-hmm. give her everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think of that? I think you're only married a year together for two, roughly. I think that you're still in the early stages of learning how to express honestly what you feel and also learning how to receive honesty from the other person. And you're still trying to figure out each other. So I think that's normal. I think that's in any relationship, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or whatever, you're, there's always like this growing period where you're trying to understand where the honesty lies or where, yeah, you know, how, how polite are we being or how real are we being. And I think there's always room for honesty if people feel like they're not going to get yelled at or consequentially destroyed over their honesty. So I, I would encourage when you, uh, when you are receiving honest comments from your wife that you temper your reactions if they're not exactly favorable comments for you to receive. Because Nana used to say, if you want your kids to be honest with you, you have to make honesty appealing. The same applies for anyone. If you want your spouse to be honest with you, you need to make being honest an appealing option. Mm-hmm. It's not that you have to agree with everybody all the time, but you can't penalize someone for being honest. So I think that's a time factor. Jess will be, will feel comfortable with expressing how, what she wants or doesn't want in time when she realizes you're okay with hearing that expression of want slash need and vice versa. Yeah. Do you remember when I was cutting myself? You didn't do it for very long. I didn't do it for very long, no. That was, I think I got mad at you. You get yeah. Well, I, I, I was like, just. What are you doing? That's ridiculous. <laughs> well, and that's don't exa- be so stupid. I was I was being stupid about you it. You were being I was, stupid. Yeah, I well, I hang, hung out with like the cutters, you know, the kids who, you know, and so it was just like it was. A, yeah, maybe I'll try this out. It was an observed behavior, and I definitely got sympathy and and attention from the girls in the group when when I had cuts on my arm, yeah. and and it was like, wow, this is like magic to get the girls in my group. But, um, and I experimented with that for a little bit, but like never like actually cutting myself. I, ha- I had it like a needle that I would just like scrape. You were scratching cat. yourself. You scratching weren't cutting, my, you were yeah, scratching. I was scratching. Um, yeah. Cause you didn't actually want to cut. No, I just wanted. I knew that. Yeah. And see, I knew you well enough. You were showing me all these scratches on your arms. And I just, I remember saying, that's just ridiculous. That's just so stupid. What are you doing that for? And a lot of parents would say, you can't do that. That's so unfeeling. And I'm like, yeah. no, this is my son. I know my son. <laughs> so what would you tell kids who are, you know, say in that position? The parenting part of that is why. Let's dig down to why. Now, as a parent, now you weren't actually cutting. I wasn't cutting. actually cutting myself. You were scratching with little little um, sewing needles. Um, had you been cutting, my response may have been different. Because... For actual cutting, which does leave like serious, excuse me, serious scars, I think parents need to understand the etymology of cutting, the behavior itself. And you can read up on that. Um, And parents have to be honest with themselves because the origins of cutting 
come from an inability to express emotional pain. It means in my, and I'm again, I'm not a psychologist, but from what I've read, it's that kids do it because they feel it's like a control thing and it's like a, an inability to express. There's no outlet for the pain they're feeling. So they create this actual pain and it feels better briefly. But of course, people keep doing it because it's like cocaine. It doesn't stay. You don't get a, it's not a fix. And I would have to take an honest look at myself as a parent and say, why is my kid doing that? If the origins of self-harming come from a place of an inability to express pain, then that means in some way I'm stifling my child's ability to express. Which is pretty serious. As a parent, you have to, like, it's horrifying to think you've stifled your own child and now they're doing this thing. Um, and then, so as a, there has to be an, alter, an alteration in parenting and then an education in the child. So together, I think, in order to recover, and again, I don't know this professionally at all, but parents of children who have been cutting or self-harming, it's a team healing. The, the parent needs to learn just as much as the child needs to learn. The child needs to learn how to express pain verbally and to get in touch with those feelings and to be okay with that. And the parent needs to be okay with hearing and being part of that expression, part of listening. When you were scratching yourself with needles, you were attention-seeking, and I knew that's what you were doing. So I didn't panic. I simply told you you were being ridiculous because I knew you were doing it to tr try and get attention. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's... It comes from having your finger on the pulse of your child. And I think for the most part, although I obviously didn't know everything, um, I had my finger on the pulse of you guys generally. And every kid grows up with stuff that they have to deal with. Um, you know, the parents didn't know, and I'm no different, and stuff goes on that parents aren't always aware of. But as best we can, as and as best as I could, I was home and had my finger on the pulse of my children as much as possible. Did I make mistakes? Sure I did. I yelled too much. You know, you got yelling from me. It's not a good trait, and you've curbed it, and I've curbed it. can't yell anymore anyway. <laughs> my vocal cord is broken, but... Um, yeah, I sort of lost where I was going with that, but we have to... The bottom line is we have to always be open to evolve... And that relationship with kids, kids change, adults change, um, but yeah. At a certain point, you transition from raising into observing, and, and what would you say to other parents when they say, it's, it's so hard to, my, to relate to my teenager, he doesn't want to do anything with me? I think probably the biggest, most important part of parenting is to realize that it is never a constant, like... Uh, you start out with this blob of flesh that poops in a diaper. Then two years later, it's running around grabbing everything. And then another five years later, it wipes its own bum and has some thoughts of its own. And another five years later, and it starts thinking girls or boys are cool. And, you know, that's illustrating 
the drastic changes involved in a human going from infancy to adult. And if a parent doesn't see the need to alter how they parent and relate to their kid, they're maybe naive or blind or maybe ignorant of the fact, like you cannot apply the same parenting strategy to every age of a child. And the biggest thing I found that was hard to learn was learning when to let go and what to let go of and how much of that to let go. And that's a constantly changing answer. The answer to that question or those questions to a five-year-old is different at a 10-year-old, different at a 15-year-old, 20, 25. So probably we as parents need to keep in mind parenting is predicted as a job by the needs of the child growing. But mental, mental needs really, emotional, mental, emotional needs, and physical, starts off very physical. Kids are very physical at first and they don't think a whole lot. <laughs> and then as they get older, the more they think, it's like an exponentially growing thought process from, you know, babies that cry to teenagers that tell you to F off <laughs> and then get kicked out of their house for that. Yeah. But um, I think if your parenting is on par, then you're constantly reassessing, okay, should I be involved in this, you know, as a... A kid needs, a parent needs to let go of some things of a teenager. And that's not easy to do because teenagers are like walking catastrophes waiting to happen. Adults know that, so they stress like crazy over their teenage children because they know they can't really control them. They have physical autonomy. A teenager physically doesn't need a parent. They can do everything themselves. And a teenager, so physically they can go to the mall, ride a bike, go to McDonald's, go whatever, go hang out with a friend's house. So a parent has to let go of some of these physical controls that we have when kids are seven. And a seven-year-old's whole environment is the four walls and whatever expansion an adult allows to happen on that environment. Uh, and then again, adult children, like I have three adult sons now, you guys, and it's difficult to learn and to alter how I present information. That was not easy. I had to actually realize I'm not a di dictator anymore. That's when kids are four, you're a dictator. I'm not even really an advisor anymore because pff, nobody really needs my advice. I mean, need, you don't need it. If I died, you'd be fine. You just might struggle a bit more. Mm -hmm. I'm more of a sounding board at this point. So my realization of that reality, is that mm -hmm. my realization of that reality, um, changes how I present my thoughts to you. But that's been a gradual process since the age of two. What would you say to... Since your age of two, not yeah, mine. My <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to the general child population about fighting with their parents and, and struggling to relate to their parents? The biggest thing is, I think, and everybody needs to do this, but I think kids can 
ask himself this question maybe and say, why is my parent doing this? And most kids who are self-absorbed, which is common, obviously, will say, well, they're just trying to make my life miserable. I mean, but if you think logically about that, you know that's not true. Mm -hmm. Not for the general population of people in the masses. So if we, one of the things I've learned um, as an adult is the value of assessing someone else's motivations. It's fun, but it's also informative. So if you do something, for example, you might get mad at me because I say something, and then I can sort of step backwards and say, well, why is Josh mad? Well, Josh is mad because he feels he's an adult and he doesn't need to be parented anymore. So maybe I presented that the wrong way or, or you're not in a position to hear it or, you know, but just, so kids can do that. A 10-year-old can say, why won't my mother let me go play? And they might be able to answer themselves, well, if I go play in the street, I could get hit, at a, hit by a car because it's nighttime and I'm allowed to play on the street when I can see the cars and they can see me on a little side street, but maybe not at night. So, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. So I think kids need to realize that parents have better things to do than to make their lives miserable. So that's probably not what they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to shift lanes a little bit, um, we were talking about, you know, simulating your own reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to know what you think about the notion going around that, you know, this may be a, a simulation that we're living in. Um, and if it's so that we're living in a simulation, what would the point of this be? So, like, if we're living in the Matrix. Yeah. Is there a point to this? Are you supposed to take something away from this experience? I think regardless of religious belief or philosophy or atheism or any of that stuff, regardless of that, I think people tend to come back to the same purpose or value system, which is where do we derive the most meaning? And I don't think it matters who you are. You don't derive the most meaning and satisfaction out of having the biggest television. You derive, and even a materialistic person on some level knows that that is not what is giving them a sense of satisfaction. The true, so that the true meaning behind it all is connectivity. We're not... It doesn't matter what we believe, but we're not here to amass vast quantities of materialistic items. Excuse me, because you can't take any of that with you, as we said before. So if you can't take anything with you, uh, then there's really no... If you think about, I just bought this TV. Oh my goodness, I love it. You spend a week, and within a week the novelty's gone. It stopped feeding you. But if you make a new friend that sort of feeds you on some kind of deep level, that novel, that just, that's not a novelty. That, that keeps going. That's a perpetual... It goes on in perpetuity. Hmm. That TV doesn't do that. And those are two very contrasted... So I don't think it matters who you are or what you believe. No one can deny that a person, human contact, is going to give you more than a television will. So the true meaning would be connectivity with with other people. That's what we're we're programmed for that. 
And speaking of other people as well, we were chatting about how typically we don't learn from other people's experiences. We learn from our own. In your life, what have you, what information have you gleaned from those around you? Well, from my mother, because as you say, our mothers seem to be very significant people usually. From my mother, I have learned two contrasting things. One is don't be selfish. And two is don't let people walk all over you. My mother was neither selfish nor self-preserving, so people did walk all over her. And I don't think she felt she valued herself enough to stick up for her, her, own, her own value. And, but I saw the length of her compassion and love for people, even on her deathbed, as she felt the need to make other people feel better while she was dying. Mm -hmm. Because she, on, in her wisdom, she realized they needed some peace with her to feel peaceful, and she wanted to give them peace of mind. She, the dying one, was giving other people peace of mind. I mean, that's outstanding. That's nuts. I'm not sure I would be that selfless on my deathbed. I don't know. I guess we'll see. <laughs> but um, that was profound to watch Nana... Um, Give, she had a couple of estranged people visit her in the hospital, and she felt enough love for them to give them emotional peace about their strained relationship history. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just impacts me profoundly. I don't know what I'm learning from that. I think I'm learning the vastness of her care for other people, which is truly unmeasurable. So that's, you know, what I learned from my mother and also learned that there is value, there is, and it's okay, it is okay for me to value myself as my mother did not do for herself. She did not invest in herself. And as I've told you guys, my best investment for you is that I invest in myself. My gift to you is that I as I age, I sustain my own independence and I have my own things to do so that I'm not a weight on you guys. And I think there's value in that and it's not a guilt thing and it's, you know, it's like a gift really to, to, to um, allow you guys to have your own lives. Not that you forget me, obviously, but that you don't carry this massive amount of guilt around um, because you have a mother who has not invested in herself enough that she has her own friends and she has her own hobbies and she has her own forms of entertainment or whatever. Um, which is, and I remember telling you guys, this is why I go to Ireland. This is why I have my Volkswagen bus. This is, this is why I do these weird things. These are just my things to do that give me joy so that my only source of joy is not my children. Some parents, and I have seen it in more than my own mother, 
Their kids are everything. And they put their kids first. And they even put their adult kids first. But you can't even put your toddler first. I couldn't put you first as a screaming baby because I was going crazy because you wouldn't stop crying. So when I put you down in your crib, I was putting me first, realizing I have got to regain my own stability. I matter. I matter. And if I make myself matter, I will be better for you. And that was a very rudimentary, raw way of putting myself first. And I didn't even realize it at the time. But ultimately, you benefit, right? You don't get shaken to death. And you end up with a calmer mother than if I stood there and said, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Even if I wasn't shaking you, but I was holding you and I was sobbing at the same time you're sobbing, that's not helping you either. It is actually better to just put you down for 20 minutes. You're not going to die. You're in a safe place. And for me to take 20 minutes to just center myself and regain some composure. So that's a really raw example of putting myself first. For some reason, society tells mothers they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't put themselves first. And my mother is an example of that. The price is ultimately the children pay. And as an adult child, if I don't put myself first, you're going to pay the price at some point because I'm going to be too needy, too dependent, sad, lonely, depressed, you name it, mm. because I have not invested in myself and I didn't value myself enough to say no. My son's a big boy. He's got his own life. He'll visit me now and then or call me when he needs or I'll call him. And we have a continuing relationship. But it isn't a dependent one. You're not dependent on me. Conversely, I haven't made myself dependent on you for meaning or for joy. You bring it to me. You bring me meaning and joy, but I don't depend on you to define my life with it. Mm -hmm. Some parents define their life by their children, and you just look at them going, man, I feel bad for that kid because that's a lot of weight to put on a, an adult child. For you to be my whole meaning, that's heavy, and that's not fair. And even as children, you know, you're not... Now we can be friends because you're an adult. Mm -hmm. I'm still your mother, so it's still a unique friendship, but it is more erring on the side of friend you know, never losing the mother component. But kids kids can't be friends with parents. You can't be friends with your kids. You can have fun and friendly times, but they're not your friend. And I think when we think of our adult kids, um, we don't do our kids any favors by making them our whole world. And you see people, especially online dating, oh, I have my kids and they're my whole world. It's a bit cliche to say it, and I don't know if everyone means it who actually says it, but I would never say to anybody, my kids are my whole world. <laughs> You're not my whole world. Yeah. <laughs> You're, I've, got another, I've got other bits of my world, too. You know. And if I didn't, if you were my whole world, I would have a very sad, unfulfilling world because you can't fill it up. As a matter of fact, no one person can be someone else's whole world. Your spouse can't. But people get married and they think, oh, they're my whole world. Good Lord, I hope not. That's going to that's gonna end in divorce. <laughs> <laughs> not that that's necessarily a bad thing. Right, but right. I'm just saying. Yeah. But yeah, so it's, I think 
that was the, the yeah how, how other we, people relating to you or yeah teaching really, you. teaching us yeah and parents yeah well yeah I'm so happy that I was able to start this podcast with you because you have been the biggest driver of um, self-actualization in my life mm. and it's it's that's a compliment thank yeah, you yeah well it i thank you because no no i thank you <laughs> no no i thank you <laughs> i wouldn't be the man i am today i would not have had the intuition mm. to correct my own behavior mm -hmm. if i didn't have you telling me think 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 about what you're doing. Make good decisions. Every time I left the house, yeah. make good decisions. Make good decisions. Make good, decisions. Make good yeah. choices. Make good choices. That's what you said all the time. And I carry that yeah. through my life. I always have your voice in my head saying, make good decisions. And so you've been the biggest contributor to my development as mm -hmm. a man. And you still are. Aw. Well, I love, I love you. I love you. And I'm proud of you. And it's rewarding. It's just rewarding. The three of you are like little walking trophies. Mm. And uh, you're a smart thinker. Everyone just needs to think more, but you're you're a good thinker. And as, as I learned to think, I tried to help you think. Mm. So thank you for thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, haven't figured out how to end these podcasts yet, so we'll end it there. Say bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> This has been Chatting with Adults. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to my mom for making it in. If you believe this episode was interesting and full of knowledge, then please share it with others and help us grow. Stay tuned for the next episode and remember, make good decisions. Good night, everybody.